What if a terminal illness hijacked the final chapter of your life? If you could, would you take back your own power, exercise your precious personal autonomy, and end your life on your own terms? The state of Oregon has been a leader in medical aid in dying since it was legalized in 1997, and the parameters of that legality seem only to be expanding even with the United States' current historically conservative federal legal system. In the face of terminal illness and increasing age, will more and more people choose to control the way they die? Join us as we discuss this important and fascinating topic with Dr. Nick Gideons, a local trailblazer on the topic of death with dignity in Oregon. I will be drinking Angel's Envy. What about you? I would like to take this opportunity to welcome Dr. Nicholas Gideons with us today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Death with Dignity Act in Oregon, and uh, we're going to dive into some of the areas that maybe we have not thought about before. We'll be talking a little bit about how the process works, how it is evolving, and ways in which we can utilize this Death with Dignity in Oregon and other states. So welcome, Nick. I appreciate it so much. I always ask these questions of my guests. What generation are you in? I'm a late boomer, uh, early Gen Xer. I was born in 1961. Well, I just had another guest on the other day that falls in that same same category, which is uh, kind of interesting. But what is your also your personal philosophy on aging, and specifically with death and dignity? Well, you know, that was a. It's hard to encapsulate a personal philosophy about aging, as I still like so many of us you know, look in the mirror and I'm surprised not to see the 16 or 18 year old staring back. And I don't think that's just delayed imagination. I just think it's a human tendency. The things that jump to mind are, you know, aging is not for sissies. I've heard that a lot. And they just the idea that it's tough and that it involves losses at some point or another. An insight I use often in my clinical work is that for many of us, at least the very end process of aging, or especially if we have any kind of brain failure, are a little like childhood development in reverse. Um, and there's that sort of stepping back, disinhibition, disinhibition of adolescence, rules-based order of the six to, you know, eight-year-old um, and onward on down, which is also a way of looking at, you know, when we come out, all we do is eat and sleep. And um, that's sort of what the end stage for lots of folks, whether that's just days or whether it's many months can sometimes look like. Um, so I like to think of it that way, which to me, it's a little more optimistic and then I feel like I'm entitled to a little regression when I reach my 70s and 80s. So part of the death with dignity evolves out of the aging process and primarily as well with the diagnoses of, you know, MLS, Luke Gehrig's disease. So how do you see those type of, of aging individuals using an, uh, the death with dignity and, and is it done very much? Yeah, well, there's there's a large start to talk about this area, which is certainly something I've had a lot of experience and some public exposure with around Oregon's death with dignity law. And um, you're absolutely right. Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, is the disease for which the highest percentage of patients use what we commonly term medical aid in dying. Death with dignity is the title of the statute in Oregon and um, it sort of encompasses the concept. But of course, one can have can have very dignified deaths without that. And likewise, death can be awfully hard and sometimes messy even with it. But ALS, 
you know, by robbing someone of, of their physicality so thoroughly um, in such a relentlessly progressive way uh, does leave someone in that incapacitated state with increasing need for respiratory support in a way that's just very, very hard to contemplate and often very, very hard to bear. So it is the disease, uh, again, for which, I mean, for which the highest percentage of patients will use it. And it's still a minority. I mean, only 1% of deaths in Oregon are medical aid and dying. And because cancer is so common, that's by far the most common diagnosis where people have a sort of predictable course and uh, a terminal phase that can, can be quite difficult and that they might wish to avoid. Um, and I'm happy to keep going about what the requirements are for medical aid and dying in Oregon. I would love to hear that. No, looking, Gary, at your, you know, some of your previous podcasts and stuff, I can't say enough about how, like so many things aging relating, a little bit of planning can really go a long way, um, as in so many crises in life that build slowly and take a long time to get here and then arrive all at once. Uh, terminal illness can it often be hard to stay a little bit of a step ahead, but because some of the requirements of the law are a little bit of stuff to go through, um, it's always very disappointing to see people struggling to complete those requirements that gets in the, before things can, might get in the way from their being able to actually use the law and the act. So yeah, death with dignity or a medical prescription that will lead to the end of your life, um, so-called medical aid and dying, is available with a set of criteria attached. And um, until recently, one of those, you be a resident of Oregon, because Oregon was the first state to legalize this in 1997. And we can talk more about that history later, maybe. You most important thing is that you have the terminality and that you have the competency. Um, and more specifically, what those mean are that the physician caring for you and a second physician agree that you have less than six months to live. Now, why six months? It's terminology that we're used to because it's the standard eligibility for hospice. Um, so some criteria have been developed. Physicians are famously poor at predicting prognosis, usually overestimating how long a patient might have to live. But six months is a reasonable place to plant that flag. And again, what we mean is a very clear terminalness that will be the end of you one way or another, whether that's, as we talked about, ALS or quite commonly cancers, but also quite frequently um, in the early years of the law, HIV was on that list. Fortunately, it's been moved to the back, but COPD or chronic respiratory disease um, is the next most common in heart failure. Uh, and then again, any condition for which we can reasonably predict that if we had 10 patients, six or more of them would be dead in six months, um, in which your second physician agrees. Um, so that's the terminality component. And a lot of times that just looks like, you know, two points to terminal line. And if two months ago you were eating 100% and now you're eating 50%, well, maybe in a couple of months you'll be eating 0%. And you can sort of think right. that way. Or, other predictors we commonly use when a cancer patient takes to bed, they're unlikely to have more than a, a month left. So if we sort of take activity levels or ability to eat, we can make some pretty good predictions if we're just willing to, to sort of put that together. You know, what body reserves does someone have? If they're cachectic and have little reserve, they're probably not going to make it as long as if they've got plenty of weight on, stuff like that. And then the competency part is really it sounds difficult and people will argue about it early in the early years of the law. Um, some of the folks who are opposed to it would sort of really uh, ride hard on how could anybody make such a choice. But um, we know what capability and competency in the legal world looks like. I believe you already talked a little bit on some of your episodes about what planning looks like and what having advanced directives or advanced judgments look like. And, you know, if somebody can reasonably tell me 
the general situation they're in, how important it is, like, is this a significant problem or a minor problem? Understand the options, retain them well enough to be able to repeat them and weigh them with a reasonable train of thought. It doesn't have to be my train of thought or my values, but a, but a train of thought that one can follow. Um, and of course, you have to be able to communicate those wishes one way or another. But if all those things are true, then people can make their own decisions. And um, the way I tell the medical students about it sometimes is if, you know, if you were going to consent this person to an appendectomy um, and they've got the capability and you wouldn't be turning to their healthcare power of attorney or their mm-hmm. uh, next of kin to, to, to give permission for an appendectomy, then they probably can give permission for this as well. Now, there's some safeguards in the law originally written that have proved useful, but maybe as time has come for to be revisited, there's the persistence of the request. Somebody can't just walk in and make this decision and turn around and 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 do it. In general, in Oregon, there's and originally there's a 15-day waiting period that would often trip people up if they were declining quickly. Fortunately, a couple of years ago, the state um, legislature changed the law to say we can bypass the 15-day waiting period if the physician prescribing thinks they might die within that 15 days or become incapable in those 15 days. It's still going to take some process because we still want repetitive requests, right? We don't want someone to just all at once make that decision. So at least a, a little period between the 48 hours, I think is the closest you can get it. And you need that second physician's opinion in that time period as well. Another way of demonstrating the, the thoroughness of someone's decision to do this um, is that they make a written request as well. So written requests, two verbal requests, generally 15 days apart, but that can be shortened when someone's declining quickly. Um, and a second physician endorsing that terminality and competency. And then documenting enough of a discussion that you've discussed their options, things like terminal sedation, things like voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, um, some idea of what the person's course would be without using the medical aid and dying, being clear with the patient that they can change their mind at any time, that just because we've given you a prescription, there's no obligation to carry it out. Indeed, almost a third of patients every year don't end up actually taking the medicine. They leave it on the shelf and leave it at the pharmacy and uh, just keep that as a safety net. But those are the basic requirements of the law. Nick, does I know some states, or Canada at least, allows for the physician to uh, assist with the uh, with the medication portion of it. Is that something Oregon does or any other state? No, I don't believe any state in the United States that I'm aware of has allowed that yet. This the requirement for self ingestion. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Is uh, is a little arbitrary. I understand that if someone can't swallow or has a hard time drinking that much liquid or because it always tastes terrible, that there wouldn't be a huge fundamental aspect difference if I were to help with that administration in some other way. I know it would be more of a burden on the physician, but um, I think if I fully knew that the patient was competent and willing, I'm not sure that difference would be that hard to bridge. But it's been awfully good as final proof of voluntariness, right? Because I don't know where people get those fantasies when someone's terminal anyway, why would you want to sort of kill granny for your inheritance uh, a few days early? But but that's their fantasy, not mine. But uh, it's kind of final proof that someone was acting voluntarily. I mean, you can't make a child drink anything. Right. Uh, same for an adult. Um, we have developed alternatives for the patient who can't swallow directly, who's okay. nausea, vomiting, blockages, whatever. Um, there can be rectal administration where a soft rubber tube is placed in the rectum and the patient self-ingests by pushing the medicine in, but they still have to do it themselves. That's a very common procedure. It's a little more common procedure 
I shouldn't say very, it's still a minority, I'm sure. But it's uh, one, for example, some ALS patients who are having trouble swallowing can can sort of get together to do. I actually had experience with this with a cousin of mine with pancreatic cancer, mm -hmm. uh, diagnosed late, very painful cancer. And so it was an option in, in the early days, I think it was the early 2000s that this occurred. And the process is basically the same, I think, other than the, the new laws coming into effect. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, the residency restriction has been procedurally removed and almost certainly will be legislatively this next formal legislative session, as that's what's changed for us. And the shortened waiting period are the only things that have changed in Oregon's law. Other states are also realizing that even the barriers, I even the processes that make sense in themselves that I've described can be really hard to go through when you have a terminal illness. Right. Um, so we've seen the waiting area, the waiting period drop to 48 hours for California. We've seen ease of access for, oh, it's a psychological requirement is, is made to make those, you know, more easily done by telemedicine. Some of those things have, have eased up. Exactly. And I understand New Mexico was just in June of last year, uh, enacted the maid mm -hmm. death with dignity over there. And they shortened uh, the timelines as well, right off the bat. New Mexico is a really interesting example of sort of toggling between legal rights approaches. You know, Montana, it's legal because the Supreme Court in Montana said there was a right to privacy and autonomy that allowed this. Um, New Mexico passed that in a couple of jurisdictions, but not in others. We were involved in a court seat there many years ago. Um, but now has moved forward in the legislative process, I guess. And the reason why I, I have found out so much about this is because there was a recent article that you were featured in with the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that, that. And the thing is for terminal patients, the barrier to aid and dying can be a state line. And so would you talk a little bit about that article and the steps that you were taking with your partner uh, to try to overturn that requirement having to be a state resident. Compassion Choices, which is an advocacy group that works on the legal environment, the political environment around it. Less than I do hope we have a chance a bit to talk about where people can get personal assistance in working right. with medical aid and dying. But on the legislative and legal side in Oregon and across the country, Compassion Choices is the main advocacy group. And uh, they approached me and had said, um, that they'd been looking at this residency requirement and wondering where it really, really fit in right now, especially in, you know, an era where generally it's been ruled on a couple of times by the Supreme Court that people can cross state lines for medical care. Uh, of course, that's in a different sphere under more controversy right now. But And whether the residency requirement in Oregon really made sense anymore. I mean, certainly when the law was passed by public vote, it was part of crafting a bill that could pass right. um, and any fears that that people would be sort of flooding the state to use the Death with Dignity Act were allayed by having a residency requirement. And I feel that made sense at the time, but it certainly felt like an idea as time had maybe passed as now almost a third of Americans live in states where medical aid and dying is, is legal. Um, and that's likely to grow in the next few years. And so we felt that there was this opportunity to make things again, easier for patients who you know live near a state line that might provide get their medical care across the state line, a really very common situation if we were able to remove the residency restriction. And of course, that might make a huge difference to a small number of patients who would come to Oregon from states where the uh, process was not allowed. 
Um, and I can talk more about what I've heard from patients since this has happened. Absolutely. Um, so, mm-hmm. And uh, I, being from Southwest Washington, all of our provide, my providers are over in Oregon. So I wouldn't need a requirement yeah. uh, to do that. So I really was kind of piqued by the article that I read and the discussion about the uh, crossing state lines. So feel free to talk a little bit more about uh, how you know, the article, it has impacted and what, what individuals are saying about the state law requirement or the, the maid uh, or death with dignity in general. Yeah, well, um, we really were very fortunate. We thought it would take quite a while to win its normal legal course, whether the state went along with us or whether we actually had to, you know, go through the court process. We thought it would take a year and a half. And in five months, the state pretty much agreed with us um, and has facilitated a solution whereby um, no Oregon physician who works within the requirements of the law to provide state uh, services to a non-resident will be prosecuted or have their license looked at or any of that. So essentially, we've we've achieved the goal, um, and they the state has drafted model legislation that would remove the residency requirement from the law. I suspect when that gets in the legislature, there'll probably be some other things tacked onto it that also make uh, medical aid and dying a little bit more accessible. Uh, but uh, um, but we'll see. Um, so that's been received really well. And I've heard very directly from my patients who live in Southwest Washington um, that they're glad to know that, you know, should every, anything ever occur where they want to use the law, that's available. Um, those have been nice conversations to have um, to let them know they wouldn't need to change physicians in the middle of a, midst of a severe illness to get the care they need. And I think that's a very important point is that not only are you dealing with a, a illness or a disease that's going to take your life, but you have to also deal with the whole of the medical system in the state, which you, yeah. and that's great on, to be able to not have to do that. So a little bit about death and, and dying and, and the medical aid and, and death that we're talking about is that other countries seem to have a, a better handle on that in some instances. Um, and Switzerland is one that I've been familiar with because I, it's one that I've really piqued my interest because of a Nobel Prize rent winner in, in physics that at 94 opted to go to Switzerland and uh, hmm. take advantage of their law. But I understand it's not that well known. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah, it it, it seems fairly quiet. Maybe it's the Swiss modesty or just keeping that way or yeah. for whatever reasons, but I've learned a lot about it because now that, you know, I've been in the paper and yeah. now the residency restriction was moved, patients find me every week or so. I'm getting a request from Florida or Missouri, Oklahoma, other states where it's not, you know, readily available um, for people who are interested and wondering what it would take. And um, some of those folks have researched Switzerland pretty carefully. And for recently, for example, a patient I spoke to in Virginia, it's probably going to be the easier option for them than trying to come to Oregon and be here for 15 days and have their death occur here and come to go to Switzerland where they probably would spend less time um, and not that much more airplane time. So I have learned a little bit about the possibility for, I think it's called the Dignitas Center there, where people sign up and sort of, I think you sort of get a subscription or a membership and then that gives you the right to potentially go there. And um, and seems like the biggest difference was how terminal you need to be. They certainly right. seemed open to people whose prognosis was more extended or even indefinite if their illness was causing great and persistent suffering. So 
I'm not 100% sure you may know better than me, but I believe even people with protracted depression, for example, um, as long as competent to make the decision and being clear about that need, but to avoid unallayed suffering, have been allowed to use the law there. And I understand that's the case as well, Nick, mm-hmm. on that one. When, we, when you talk to a, a patient coming in, what are some of the things that you relay to them when you have a discussion about the medical aid in dying? Well, I mean, I think first I really try to get a good sense of what the drivers for them are. Is it the loss of autonomy for which there really is no palliation? You may get used to things you never got used to, thought you'd get used to before, but you know, when you can't perform certain functions for yourself and other people have to do it, that is in, and it will always be a loss of autonomy. And that's the number one reason that most people cite. Um, sometimes people think of certain parts of the terminal phase, their illness, again, maybe being bed bound is undignified. There can be a concern for unmet pain, but most of the time that's really relatively secondary. People, we have pain regimens that work, hospice works that way most of the time, though I've certainly had patients suffer uncontrolled pain and uh, avoid uncontrolled pain despite all our best efforts through medical aid and dying. And, you know, a lot of it for many, many patients is just something about no more good days, right? The loss of enjoyable activity. Um, It's one thing to suffer through, you know, a post-operative period for surgery or where they're terribly sick and receiving antibiotics. It's one thing to suffer that when there might be good days to come in the future. But if there's nothing but the relentless decline of a terminal illness, the loss of good days is pretty much about the point where people um, begin to really think about their options to, to avoid that. Um, so my conversation starts with, you know, hey, I spent most of my day trying to fight off death and prolong it. This is a big decision and, of course, irrevocable. Tell me why we'd, why we'd be doing such a thing and, and trying to explore other ways to meet those goals. Um, after that, it's really about the terminality and getting a real sense of their individual prognosis. And, uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the full, that they're fully competent to make a decision and can do the actual act of either self, of self-ingestion generally by drinking or by um, self-administration. And then we spend a little time talking about what it's actually like. And I can go into that here if you like. Absolutely. What that day would be like. Absolutely. What would the day look like? Yeah. Well, it'll, you know, you'll wake up, but um, you will have received the medicine already just from the pharmacy, like any other prescription, really. Your relative could have gone and picked it up. Health insurance rarely pays for it. So these days it's around five or $600 for this cocktail of drugs. And essentially it's standard class of drugs, opiates, benzodiazepines, um, maybe a barbiturate and some heart medications that are in powder form. And you mix them in four to six ounces of liquid. It's going to taste terrible. A straw in the back of your tongue can help. I encourage patients or even their family members to just take the slightest taste because you don't want that bitterness to hit your tongue and it's a surprise because it's just nasty. And there's no, you have to dilute it in 30 gallons. And then, you know, once that's mixed up and you've, you know, maybe said goodbye to anyone who's there or not, set in a comfortable place where you can fall asleep without falling over. You drink the medication and you don't need to drink it in one gulp. You just need to drink it quickly enough that, You'll get all of it or almost all of it down um, before you start to fall asleep. So over a couple of minutes, maybe with a straw to avoid the bitterness, maybe just a sip at a time, um, or some people just toss it back. And then you can drink whatever you like to get the taste out of your mouth. And if that's a shot of whiskey, that's fine. If that's some grapefruit juice or water, that's fine, whatever you like. Uh, And then really just a few minutes later, five or 10 minutes later, probably right around the time the patient goes, is this stuff going to work? 
they fall asleep and it's lights out. It's like, you know, if you've ever had a procedure where they said count backwards from 100 and you get to about 95, 94. Uh, um, and at that point, the patient's fallen asleep and is never going to wake up. Right. Now, how long it takes for their breathing, you know, some brain stems just don't slow down, even with these mega doses of opiates and benzodiazepines, Valium. And that's when the heart medicine a few hours later will eventually cause a heart black. But the patient's experience is the same. I fell asleep and never woke up. The other flip side, I think, to discussion of medical aid in dying is how comfortable individuals feel with their local primary physician to have that discussion. How do you run into that where, where an individual comes to you and says, I just didn't feel comfortable talking to my, my primary doctor? Yeah, I have, you know, maybe something in their past history or there's something the way they know their physician in the community. Maybe it's religious reasons, others. Uh, many, much of our healthcare system is in Catholic health care facilities and hospitals that continue to sort of a conglomerate across the country. And um, those prohibitions, while very variable, I've definitely worked in Catholic healthcare systems and had variable degrees to which they cared how deeply anyone was involved in this. But as a general rule, um, they've created more and more fear among physicians that they would be in trouble somehow. I've known very physicians who have said, I don't care. Yeah. And they sort of just keep it off. You know, they don't, they don't bill for that visit or something. It's not that hard, but, um, but that's a minority. And many physicians I know are genuinely afraid. And if the patient picks up on that, they, they may assume they can't ask. One thing your, your listeners should know, um, uh, you know, the 15-day requirement starts as soon as you ask an Oregon physician whether they will interest it. And even if they say, hell no, I'd lose my job and I don't believe it in anyway. No, I won't participate. You've asked an Oregon physician and the 15 days has started. So I encourage your listeners to go ahead and have these conversations early. It may serve you good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that raises the other issue that we we that is out there is bioethicist and how they're weighing in on this discussion. And, and I know uh, that you stated that, that it hasn't discussion hasn't happened in over just the first decade, but are those discussions picking up or how, how are they looking at this uh, medical aid and dying? Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me. I could imagine, especially in a state like New York where the Hastings center, which is the premier bioethicist institution is located and, yeah. I can imagine that there would be a lot of discussion if it came to a ballot measure or a legislative process that was contested on the state of New York. So I think we should keep our eyes out for that. But um, there was a lot early because it was so theoretical and we were working with the kind of constructs of ideas that bioethicists have. And we did need early information from the first few years of the law to understand you know, a better sense of how much people shortening their life by generally just days to weeks as a term. Right. Once we started to really study and what were the reasons people most, you know, commonly cited and Oregon's been wonderful with its early law and really collecting good data. And again, your listeners can just Google Oregon Death with Dignity Act or Oregon Health Authority Death with Dignity Act, and they'll find a wonderful series of annual reports that describe what the reasons people cited or their physicians cited, what the diagnoses were what type of patient they were, socioeconomic, I said a bunch of these things are, are listed. Were they enrolled in hospice care? 98% of the time they are. So there's all sorts of great information there. Um, so as we collected that information, a lot of these questions became just much more settled, right? Right. And because it was around, you know, maybe it was a little earlier area of politicization, but 
you know, I found so-called right-wing libertarians and people very progressive on the left would really come around on the backside of this issue about it being so clearly about personal autonomy. And in that sense, I think the question sort of got settled fairly quickly about the, you know, traditional bioethical terms of beneficence and competency and all that around the the fact that it was, you know, really one's own dying process, writing the own their own final chapter for a book that um, was the story of their life and for which maybe their terminal illness had really hijacked the last couple of chapters. And I tend to buy, I actually had a client that came to me, we were going to be PR of the estate for her. And she said, I'm letting you know that I'm going to be doing the, the medical aid in dying tomorrow or the next day uh, and made that decision. And I think that, that again, that's so personal that she really felt that this was a good decision for her. And I, the, the other thing I would say is she said, she says, I have thought about this. And if I had any hesitation, I wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where a part of the discussion where, well, on religious grounds or other grounds, you don't want to do this, but that's a personal choice for that person, not necessarily everyone. Is there any concern about the recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings on becoming more conservative on some of these health issues and, and, uh, things and overturning things. Is there any, any insight into that maybe might be a concern going forward? Yeah, I had really felt that, you know, given that we had a Supreme Court decision in 2006 that protected the law from uh, any action against it based on DEA regulations, because the Supreme Court has ruled a couple of times about crossing state lines for medical care, that we'd be very unlikely to be under threat for this. But, you know, I am a little more concerned. It seems like a number of states have, are trying to make efforts that would cross state lines and enforce their laws in other states. Right. Uh, those kind of loopholes are allowed. Um, I am concerned. Um, we're going to be very cautious about the residency requirement in Oregon. Right now, we're pretty much insisting that people carry out the entire act here. Mm-hmm. Um, from a state where it's legal, like our example of Washington, then maybe that won't be so important. Right. But I certainly don't want my patients to lose access to all the services I provide because a zealous prosecutor in Idaho has decided to come after me about someone on Idaho and who came to Oregon. So we're going to be pretty cautious. And there's angles that, you know, in, in your field and, and trust services and stuff where I think we want to be careful that people's inheritance plans aren't blown up because it's ruled a suicide. I want to be clear to your listeners that in yeah. Oregon and every other state that I know of, your death certificate reads that you died of pancreatic cancer. And just right. because you happen to use death with dignity for the final act um, doesn't change that fact. Um, you you died because you had pancreatic cancer. So, um, so yeah, there's a number of things that we're going to be cautious about and why I'm a little more concerned than I did, particularly begins, you know, my understanding of the Dobbs v. Jackson women's decision is that it's it's around issues of autonomy and privacy that were sort of deemed to be universal and maybe aren't so much anymore. On the other hand, this isn't about sort of imagined saving of other people's lives or uh, other uh, and telling other people what to do with a reproduction. This is about the final stage of a dying illness. And as I sort of mentioned before, I think there are libertarian arguments for this on, on both sides of the political spectrum. I would certainly hope so on that side with it. Is there any other discussions? I know in the article, the New York Times article that I referred to earlier that that you were featured in, uh, a lot of some of the religious communities are really starting to voice their 
their objections to any of these laws. Is that picking up or is it staying about the same? Or do you- No, I, I feel that it's stayed pretty much the same. Again, the arguments, you know, can't be projected onto on children and, and the arguments remain, you know, fairly standard and old. And again, so many of the uh, slippery slope arguments, the harm to the vulnerable arguments that were poised early have just not come to pass. So the credibility for for that is much less than it used to be. There are a number of voice, other religious voices in this conversation that are that are supportive of our autonomy. Right. That right. Um, that a loving God doesn't want us to suffer the end stages of of terminal biology, if you will. So I feel like that's a fairly steady and stable argument, and um, I don't expect opposition to, from religious quarters to change. But um, of course, this, no one's forcing anyone else to do this. So yeah, and I think that probably. Oregon being uh, the leading state in 97 has enough data that, that supports all of the, that supports us not taking advantage of people, not doing that. And the reasons are justified in individuals selecting the medical aid and dying solution for their lives. Unlike, for example, the abortion debate, there, there, there were always bills introduced every year in the Oregon legislature and in many other states, and that argument sort of stayed simmering, but that just hasn't happened here. No one's really tried to reverse our law. It's been successful and limited and so clearly based on patient autonomy. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about a hospice, uh, and 98%, I believe is what you said, are on hospice. Explain a little difference between why someone like myself would elect uh, medical aid and dying, even though I'm still on hospice. Sure. Hospice is a model of medical care. It's a specific way that Medicare and other insurances pay that changes from the curative model and looks much more to just every making every day as good as possible when the acceptance of likely six-month terminality um, sure. is met. Um, so essentially, you know, generally a nurse takes over the care, visits your home at least on a weekly basis. Um, there's chaplaincy, there's social workers to help things like, you know, planning for your burial or wrapping up affairs. Do you have a will? Can you get one together? Are your housing and your personal needs? Hospice does not care for your personal needs, your activities of daily living, toileting, <clears throat> feeding, that's still all up to you and the people around you, or if you need to right. be in a care facility to do that. Social work helps with that kind of stuff. So it's this model of medical care. It shares the goal of nothing but good days, um, but does not necessarily. And in fact, early on, there was a lot of feeling in the hospice movement that medical aid and dying sort of wasn't giving people the chance to get the best services from hospice they could. That feeling has really melted away. It's not an alternative to hospice. We all work together to provide the best final days for a patient. But hospice provides that care with a focus on medical treatment of symptoms like shortness of breath or pain or swelling and, and just provides that. Some hospices, if they're religiously affiliated, won't participate at all with medical aid and dying, but most are um, pretty permissive. And again, just when a patient has made that decision and has gotten themselves together to meet the requirements that we discussed earlier, um, we'll be around to assist to make sure things go well for that patient. An additional resource I maybe I'll take the time now to mention is there is a group in Oregon and in another group in Washington called End of Life Choices of Oregon and End of Life Choices of Washington that does provide volunteer services, advice, even volunteers that will come to your home and help with that day that we described, the day of administration, um, the day of hastening, if you will, or a planned death is another description of it. 
So again, your listeners, if they're you know more actively trying to get more information or think this might be something they would do in the coming months, I would really encourage them to reach out to those organizations for additional information, even quite a bit more assistance than that in a volunteer and no cost basis. Yeah, the article I, that I referred to about Canada actually was in Psychology Today, the Jude issue. And I actually saw it in my therapist's office. But they were talking a little bit about how individuals pick whether they want to die alone or die with people around mm -hmm. and how that looks like. And that was something I hadn't even thought about. But it, they seemed to get down to the issues of how you want this to look like mm -hmm. last day, which I thought was very interesting and kind of made me think, what would I do, want? But uh, do you guys have a discussion with them about whether how they yeah. this process? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been in somewhere I kind of felt like it got uncomfortable for the patient. There was maybe got a little performative or so many people sort of wanted to be there to celebrate the patient and support him. But it kind of got a little out of hand a, a couple of times, I felt. I remember one where the patient did have a gathering and sort of a celebration with him that his days of suffering were over. But at that point, he sort of said goodbye and they gathered downstairs because he wanted his last memory of them to be, you know, the smile and the wave, not the sort of nodding off to the medication and the, you know, labored end of life breathing. He asked me to stay with him as along with his, his you know, beloved dog. And just as he started to feel the medicine come on, he waved me over to whisper into my ear. And I thought, oh, great. Now I'm going to hear the big last secret or something. But he just was wanted to say that he had done a lot of things right in his life and that this was one of them. And I was very touched by that aspect Absolutely. of have your people around, but maybe the the final act of, of falling asleep should be, you know, a much smaller number. I don't know whether anybody watches Frankie and Grace or Grace and Frankie on <laughs> at all, but they did a, a really good episode of one of their friends that threw that huge party and had a wonderful time and then went and uh, uh, used the, the medical aid in dying for her. And it was just a really wonderful presentation on yeah. how that could look. So um, that really has, has stuck with me. And I think that probably, I just want to throw the biggest party I can if I have to <laughs> this point. Everybody celebrate and uh, go out remembering that. I think yeah. that's great to do that. On uh, the other ones, um, a couple of other things I think we'd like to touch on is how do you think this is the, the medical aid in dying is going to be affecting future generations or the boomer generation as we have it now? I really think this is going to become much better option and more utilized option. I think the numbers are going to go way up. Um, we're sort of seeing there's that Oregon website I mentioned has sort of the curve and you definitely see more than a linear increase, more than the number of folks in Oregon who are dying every year, more than the growth of the population as a whole. Um, I think that has to do with the autonomy of baby boomers, the consumerism of baby boomers, as well as, you know, the challenges that, that are to come for all of us out there. And I think, um, I think it's likely that, you know, the restrictions will continue to relax you know, modestly, as you said, there's still going to be folks who are against it in a philosophical way, but I doubt those arguments will succeed. And I think people will be much better at planning ahead and, you know, making this a clear and talked about option. I mean, nobody wants to talk about death. It's not anything that, you know, it's generally not the topic that people go to for conversation. And But when people have the chance to think about it, you know, just like end-of-life financial planning or something else, um, they're glad they did. And uh, a little bit of conversation can go a long way. 
Um, I also think early on, I know I had a very, well, maybe because of the fear mongering for the folks who were opposed early on or the idea that somehow doctors were changing from healers to, right. to killers. Um, I never wanted to sort of, and because I, I do remember very specifically an anti-choice physician sort of describing a time where a physician maybe had suggested to his wife that she save up medication to be able to do this on her own. And he sort of felt horrified that the doctor was suggesting that someone might end their own life that I've sort of felt a gentle prohibition against really ever suggesting it or even letting people right. know, even though they're telling me they might really want to do this. I didn't want to put those words in their mouth or ever be seeped as thinking, because I don't want them to die that I was ever suggesting that. And I think that's probably, I think we can let that go. This is a standard option. There's a standard medical procedure. It's available to a third of the people in the country. We ought to be able to just talk about it when we talk about end-of-life options so people can make their choices and not be afraid to ask us, as you mentioned before. So I expect those numbers to go up. And I also think that probably as the boomers are aging longer, we're living, that some of these options like medical aid and dying will become a more core the forefront for us because our quality of life may not be great. We might live to nine to five, but what's the quality of life looking like? Yeah. Uh, and are we and the likelihood of having a disease or a cancer or something that is going to end our life is more is higher. Yeah. I think that's a shift in that. I think that's one area where I would I would certainly feel comfortable if we sort of expanded the definitions a little bit. You may have run into a recent story, I think it was in New York Times, I'm trying to remember where I read this story, but of a, of a patient whose husband went to Switzerland with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, unfortunately, many people have asked me about Alzheimer's disease and medical aid and dying. And right now that doesn't really intersect because um, way before you have six months terminality left, yeah. um, you've begun to lose the competency to make that decision. But I could really imagine a, a change that would allow people to sort of say, you know, when these parameters occur, either I'm allowed to end my life substantially earlier than six months in this situation, or as long as I'm still understanding enough to know what I'm doing, even if I can't remember all the details perfectly, that I would be allowed in that circumstance to carry out the act that I'd planned when I was competent. Um, but I think we do need an answer for for the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, where the competency terminality clause just is, doesn't cover that territory. You're absolutely correct in that. Uh, I, I call it, we call it substituted judgments of a person where cognitive abilities to make decisions, then we would pick up and make the decision if we're guardians or conservators, whatever, make the decision for that person as if they had capacity. So if they've stated that for, for several times and written about it, then, then that should be honored to them. Mm -hmm. So maybe hopefully that will happen as we age longer, but, uh, to do that, you, uh, is there anything else that you think our listeners would like to know uh, about things having to do with the, the medical aid and dying issue or the death and dignity in Oregon? Yeah. Um, if you're from a state, if your listener is from a state where they're um, don't have access to medical aid and dying. Um, do reach out to Compassion and Choices. They have a, a services guideline and can give you discussion of what is available to you, whether that's the you know difficult but possible journey to come to a state like Oregon or Switzerland, um, but also how else you can achieve some of the same ends, the advice that we give in that situation. Um, if you do live in a state where it's legal, do go ahead and make that 
request. You can make a first request even well before you have a terminal illness, um, just to get that conversation broached. So it's not hard when the time comes up and um, maybe you won't have to get sort of stuck trying to rush through the criteria I mentioned before. Have those conversations. It's part of a broader, what do you want your final days and years to look like? Um, but go ahead and have those conversations. I really encourage you. That would be great. And Nick, I want to thank you so much for the discussion on this issue. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time to visit with me and our listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.